This is iFanboy Booksplode, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, a novel. Fanboy Booksplode, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, a novel. My name is Connor Kilpatrick, and I am here with Josh Lanigan. Hey there. I was understanding that we were to be talking about a comic book. Nope. Did you read the comic, The Escapist? Oh, no. I wish I had. I was like, man, I want to find that again. Yeah, let's talk about that. That's going to be a discussion point, too. So we're here. This is our Booksplode show unlocked by the patrons over at patreon.com slash ifanboy. They unlocked this show along with our Talksplode and Mediasplode shows. And this is the show in which Josh and I, or some other combination of ifanboy hosts, discuss a collected edition, a graphic novel, an original graphic novel, or sometimes... For the second time in the history of the Booksplode, a prose book, and uh, that's what we're doing. There'll be spoilers for this book that came out 23 years ago. So if you haven't read it, uh, you might want to before the show uh-huh. because uh, it's goddamn worth it. So Josh, this book, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, came out on September 19th, 2000, 23 years ago, published by Random House, written by Michael Chabon, and set the world on fire, if I recall correctly. It was like almost a quarter of a century ago. so I'm- Which I was surprised about. I thought maybe early 2000s, I looked, it was like 2000, solid 2000, September of 2000 when it came out. This book came out a month before we started iFanboy. Really? Yeah. And I remember at the time in the comics world, this was a big deal because, as we'll get into, this Mm -hmm. book takes place at the birth of the comic book industry in New York City in the 1940s up and through sort of the golden age of comics and it you know features some real historical figures in the comic world, but mostly it's about these fictionalized characters and these fictionalized publishers and fictionalized characters. But I remember for sure amongst the nascent comics internet, which was somewhat thriving in 2000, which is part of the reason why we started that sure. boy. This was all the talk, all the rage, because this was this big prestige fiction release that ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize for fiction and was incredibly popular and you know was about the comic book world and people were freaking out in the comics community but also just in general because it was a great great book that got a lot of press well it's also important to remember that you know comics went through a very good time for a while and could still say there is you know we we have a very different world now than then there you know we have a graphic novel market that matters you know culturally that matters financially we have you know superheroes have sort of taken over as the dominant genre like westerns once were but in 2000 the context for this is that comics was almost dead we're coming out of after the bust uh we're coming out of marvel being bankrupt well we're two years into marvel night so at this point right but but that's them rebuilding you know you've had the folks over at vertigo sort of like shaping some of the things that would be happening. Marvel Knights is starting a, a little bit, but it hadn't, you know, re- when did, uh, this would be about the time that Ultimate Spider-Man started. Yeah, that's for sure. But Daredevil started in 98. So yeah. creatively, we were in a really good place. Yes, we were. Across both Marvel and DC and Image and other places. It's sort sure. of, the, that's all sort of the build up to Civil War almost. You know, like yeah. that was when it sort of reached its its apex again. And so I find it really interesting because it is a story about the dawn of the the comics era. You're talking about the 30s. Basically, when this story starts, I want to say... It's 39. 39. Superman is new. 
but very popular. And I read it at the time. I didn't know anything back then. Mm-hmm. Like when I I read it the first, I, I mean, I think that we read it. I must have read it when it came out. I have the first edition hardcover yeah. here. I didn't read that one. I read a, a later soft cover because the first mm-hmm. edition hardcover I have is like falling apart. I think that's what I have too. It had those weird fringed pages. Yeah, the great drawing of the escapist punching Hitler in the cover. and Yeah. But I'm glad I didn't read that one because the one I read has a bunch of new material that I also want to talk about. Oh, but no kidding. Yeah. And 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 just to, for my part, I got a credit from Audible. <laughs> uh, it was like I got a credit and I was like looking for their sales stuff. So I was like, I'll get a free book or whatever. And I sort of flipped past Cavalier and Clay. And then I was I went, you know what? I loved that book. And I realized how long it had been. So I grabbed that and then I didn't really think about it. I kept it for a while. And then one day I just was like, I need to start this. And like from that moment, I was wrapped. Well, that's interesting question. So we both read this 23 years ago, mm-hmm. very different places in our lives. Did you remember much? I found myself remembering some very broad strokes. And then as the course of reading, and I go, oh, right, right, right. He's gay. Mm-hmm. But like, for the most part, it was basically a brand new novel, which was both exciting and disheartening because then I was like, well, shit. What about all these other books I read 20 years ago that were great? Should I reread those again and experience them again for the first time? Well, I'm not going to get too far off here, but this is part of that for me. And is yeah. that like, because, I, you know, I, I listen to audiobooks more is because I can get through a lot of stuff, walking the dogs, doing the dishes, whatever, driving. That's when I, I do. And what I did was I've gone through almost every Neil Stevenson book, which were all my favorite mm-hmm. books. And most right. of those, you know, 20, 15 years out, something like that. And for some of them, it really was like reading them for the first time. Like I remember yeah. the broad strokes, but big deal. You can read a summary of anything. The experience of the thing. Yes. It was like getting to fall in love again. Oh, Because you yeah. knew, like I loved it then. And a lot of times when you go back, I don't have the experience like you go back to something that you loved and then you're like, I don't know what I liked about this. It's more like, oh my God, I see what I liked about this. And then you add all of those years and context to it and it makes it even better. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I remember originally, because I think like we were all reading it at the same time, you know, because it came mm-hmm. out, we all got sure. it. And I remember having trouble in the beginning, like mm-hmm. latching on to the story, which happens sometimes where it's like, it takes me a while to get into it. And so I was a little worried going back to it when you suggested we do this. And I, I just remember being sort of feeling like I was maybe bogged down in the beginning where we get the the backstory on Joseph Cavalier. We'll get to the plot in a second. But we, mm-hmm. you know, we see him back in Prague and learning magic in the Gollum. And, and I remember being bogged down by that. But first of all, that part was much shorter than I remember it being. Right. And second of all, I really liked it this time. So well, I, I, well, I, had I didn't no have a idea. single problem with this book. This book was fucking awesome. Yeah. I had no idea what a Gollum was back then. Right. That was when I learned that word. Now, I'm not saying I'm uh, a That's student. before you married of, a Jewish woman and had two right. Jewish kids? Yeah, no, like I understand. Also, I've just read so much more since then. Yeah. And like this, you know, I just know more about everything that mm-hmm. makes you just appreciate all those things. But yeah, yeah the, it, you know, I even know, you know, I know more about the Jewish diaspora that it comes in the years before World War II really kicks in. Yep. Not to mention comics history. It's because yep. the thing that I loved about this was that a lot of it was also the comic stuff was awesome. Yes. And reading it now from the point of view who, you know, I got my 10,000 hours in both mm-hmm. of the form and the history and the, the business, all those things. And to see what a writer did back then when it was not as easy to get to information and, and the way that they appreciated the form, it spoke to me in a way that very few things that I well, do. I mean, not as easy, but also easier. I mean, he mm-hmm. he interviewed a bunch of people who were still alive back That's then. That's a good I mean, point. He interviewed Will Eisner. He interviewed Gil Kane. In you know, the late 90s when he's mm-hmm. writing this book, those guys are still alive. Mm-hmm. 
the first three names he sees thanks in the acknowledgements are Gil Kane, Will Eisner, and I can't find wow. where the acknowledgements are. But he says especially Gil Kane. I think he spent a lot of time interviewing those guys. I don't know if we should be jumping in or if I'm good, but here we are. There's a very specific bit where he's describing. All right, so Joe Cavalier, who is uh, is uh, from Poland, he's escaped. He's the only one of his family got out, and he comes and lives with his cousin Sammy. They are very, 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 very roughly Stanajek. There's elements of each, but also not direct analogs at all. I don't know. I wouldn't say there are, but... I know, but it, like as a stand-in, there are people who... There who... are elements of that story, like Sam, the writer, Sam really wants to be a novelist. Right. That was totally Stan, but... And neither of them ever really sort of eclipse... Actually, it's almost more... He's, he's both Joe Simon and Stan. It's a, bunch of, it's a bunch of stuff. Anyway, he's not those things. He's thrown a lot of people into the pot here. There's, there's, yes. there's things you recognize from Golden Age creators that are in here, but they're not exactly analogs in the way that right. Hey Kids comics are analogs. It's right. not like that. Plus, Stanley shows up in the book. Right. No, I know. But Joe's kind of Kirby in that he is the er. He is the one. I don't think so because really, because Kirby's whole thing was he was prolifically creating these properties. I think he's more like he's Jack Kirby in the '60s, not Jack Kirby of the '30s. No, I think he's more like those guys who who were really popular amongst artists in the '40s and and sort of either died early or never did anything of influence. But guys back then, will th- oh, you know, like mm-hmm. but they did. The Escapist was. Well, a lot of those things were popular at the time, but didn't transcend time. Right. It didn't make it through the, to the 60s. He just didn't continue on. I wouldn't say he's Kirby. I'd say he's more like the experimental avant-garde guys from the 40s that the real nerds talk about. Fair enough. I'm, I'm not even disagreeing, but it's interesting. It's a novel. You put into it what you sort of take to yeah. it, and that's sort of what you get. Anyway, there's a bit where they're talking about his page. They're describing sort of the beauty of his pages. And there's actually a thing where they go and they'll start telling the story of the comic as if you are reading a novelization of the comic. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. And then in other bits, they'll describe the sort of the beauty of the panels in intricate detail, like breaking the, the gutter and going over this and then the way that a certain thing is drawn. And what I got out of that was this just love of the art form that there's so few people who I know in my real life who would hear that and talk about it and feel like they utterly relate to that feeling. And now you see, take that and you, you take a guy, Michael Shabon, whose prose is magnificent. Yeah. There's a reason it won a Pulitzer Prize book, and it's not because the history of comics was... No. His prose is beautiful. The way that he uses words, his descriptions of people and sounds and faces and comic book pages is otherworldly. And dialogue, too. Yeah. It's shocking that somebody is this good at it. You know, like it gets to make a living from it. Yeah, it's it's great that he's this good at it, and he also has a clear and abiding love of comic books, not as, just as a form, but as an industry and the mm-hmm. people who made them. Yeah. Because everyone in this book is flawed in some way, because obviously mm-hmm. they're human characters, but there's a great love for that time. So one of my favorite parts of the book is when they first start out creating comics, Empire Comics and The Escapist, and they round up that group of like ne'er-do-well artists who are also mm-hmm. in that flop house and they make, you know, like they seven They take over or eight. somebody's apartment. <laughs> yeah, like that was my, like one of my favorite parts of the yeah. book. You know, you don't really get to do that anymore, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Like you don't just get to be like, here's a couple of like guys in a flea bag apartment who are also great artists. And they wrote a 64-page book. <laughs> and just did it. That was one of my favorite bits. So the story of this book is basically these two cousins, as Josh said, uh, Joe Cavalier, who comes to America from Prague, escaping the Nazis because they've occupied Prague. He has to escape. And he's learned magic. He's a magician. There's a whole metaphor for escaping, escapism, Uh escapist magicians. He escapes and ends up in Brooklyn with his cousin, Sammy Clayman, who goes by Sammy Clay professionally. And they're both like 17, 19 years old. And turns out they both can draw, but Joe's a really great artist and Sammy's a really prolific writer. And they end up 
uh, working in the comic book industry as young boys who create this character called the escapist who is modeled after superman and becomes very popular it shows up in uh, radio serials and uh, you know on lunch boxes and all kinds of stuff and goes from there and it, that's the spine of it but really it's about these cousins and and you know sammy's in the closet in the 40s what does that even mean and you know, Joe finds love, but he's preoccupied with the war because his family and his little brother are still over there. Like, there's a lot. There's so many things being examined here that it was almost head spinning to read it again. Like all the things that he's yeah. talking, looking at life, Jewish life in America, Jewish life in the 40s, the life of a gay man in the 40s, artists in the 40s, the war, Americans' feelings about the war. Like, there was so much going on in this book. It was a. It was just a. Oof! I, I couldn't put it down. The thing that I remember from my initial read is that there was a chunk in the middle and it sort of took you out of the thing. And also the same kind of thing happens in Shabon's book, Wonder Boys. Mm -hmm. There's a bit in the middle where he ends up going to somebody's house, Tobey Maguire's character, sorry. And like you spend a lot of time in that house as he's walking. And it's like it, it puts the, the thing, on, it put the brakes on the whole thing. Oh, the party where he meets Rosa? Yeah, I think. I don't know. It's been a long time. Joe falls in love with this woman, Rosa, who he meets oh. at, at the flop house originally. And no, no. Then he's... That's not what I mean, though. For me, it was when Joe joins the army and oh. goes. he goes to Antarctica for yes. a while. And I remember the first time I read that, that I had a hard time getting through that part. Mm -hmm. And part of it was that like when I read it previously, I was angry at him. Like, mm. I was like, why are you doing, and this is the thing is that Joe has to constantly escape. He's got wanderlust. He's just never at ease where he is or whatever. He also wants revenge in the Nazis. He wants yeah, it's, Nazis. it's all of this stuff though. He's like this boiling, quiet cauldron. And that part of the story last, I was waiting for it. I was like, mm -hmm. there's, there's a thing that happens and he's in the Arctic. That's kind of all I remembered. And, you know, it becomes this sort of weird story of Arctic survival. And again, I've read more about that stuff since then. You know, again, I, it presented no challenge for me. I was like, this is fucking fascinating. This is a great short story on its own. Yeah. So that's what's interesting about the book is like, it's a fascinating look at Jewish life in America. It's a fascinating <laughs> look at the comic industry. It becomes a fascinating war story. And then it becomes a fascinating 1950s suburban post-war ennui tale. Like it <laughs> has all these different facets, but they all seamlessly work together to create this epic story of a mid-century America. I love the war bit. Mm -hmm. I was sad when it was over. I love the post-war bit where we, we jump forward in time. Things have really changed, mm -hmm. but everyone's still recognizably themselves. Yeah. It's heartbreaking and all this stuff that, you know, it's just, oh man, this is such an epic. We're spoiling this to a certain extent because to me, I can talk about the plot points and it isn't going to matter anything to the experience of reading the book. If you're listening here and you still haven't read it, We've given you a couple of minor spoilers that aren't yes. going to really fix it. Stop right now and go read it for huh. real. Like, and come back and listen yeah. again. But it's we've true. hopefully given you enough to this point to be like, that sounds interesting to me. I might want to read that. Go check it out now and then come back because we really have to sort of delve into things. Yeah. You know, so so basically, the, you know, the, the problem here is that Joe runs away. He runs away from everything over and over again. I couldn't tell you in a couple of words why, but I, you start to understand it as it goes on. But it is very difficult to... I couldn't explain it bit by bit. Mm. There's the, Anyway, so he goes and he leaves the love of his life. Mm. And there's also a lot of happenstance things that if the characters had had the information that they just missed, and we get the story of a letter that his mother wrote him that said, go and be happy, don't worry about us. And he keeps it in his pocket for a very long time, and then it gets lost and or destroyed, right. and he never hears it. And if he just had that peace of mind, then maybe everything would be different, but he doesn't. I really liked the narration voice, which was... Omniscient, yes. obviously, but also sort of like, almost like behind the music, like mm -hmm. it was coming at us from the future. Yeah. So it, it would occasionally be like, 
you know, this was the last comic she ever drew or be like in the future, you know, in, in 40 years, she'd become an underground sensation. Her, her pages yeah. would sell for premium. Like I liked that voice where it gave like, this was like a historical context to the story. This mm-hmm. is why this is important. These things will reverberate into the future. I liked that a lot. And yeah. there were footnotes and things like that too, which made it seem like that. Tons of them. Tons yeah. of them. Like it's one of those, like the world is so fleshed out that it's, it's magnificent. And so, you know, Joe goes away. He finds out he has, he finds out he does have a kid or he puts it together and, you know, he comes back and everybody's angry. And the fact is like at the end of the day, like it still is a love story. And because the way that the story had gone is that nothing had worked out for anybody at all, basically, you know, like everything that was uh, good. Yes and no. I mean, well, right. I they mean, got but, screwed. Like everybody, the gold ditch got screwed. Like sure. there was one part where they said the best year they ever had at Empire Comics was they were doing a series of books, including the Escapist. Was mm-hmm. they made? I think it was like fifty nine thousand dollars. Right. And I did the calculations on the inflation. It was like basically they each made about six hundred thousand dollars, which in today's dollars, this is great. Right. That's a great amount of money. But the publisher was making twelve to fifteen million dollars in the forties off of the character, so they got screwed. But at the same time, when he comes back from the war, you know, Sammy's back in comics. He's not working at a high end one, but he's making a good living. And Rose yeah. is drawing them, and you know, she's become a popular romance artist. So like, they're not like destitute, or they're living in a nice house in the suburbs in Long Island, and. But they're working. They're getting through. They're middle class. Yeah. You know, like also they're, they're sh- also in their early thirties. They're not like they're right. But they also you know. should have had generational wealth. Sure. Well, everyone got screwed. Yeah. And absolutely, actually, in that way, then the metaphor switches from a Stan and Jack or whoever, because that's Siegel and Schuster. Is that yeah. that's what happened to them? And they also like in the. 40s and 50s like they were making a shitload of money i mean like i think i read you know like they may have made a million dollars you know a year at one point during there which was amazing but it ain't what they would have got making 20 exactly yeah at some point in the the 40s they're like sam has more money than he can spend and joe doesn't really spend money anyway so he's he's, by the 50s he goes from the war he's got a million dollars in the bank right and then he's going to blow it. But anyway, the real point of the whole thing is that you think, oh, no, these two people who have found the loves of their lives, it's going to go away. And Shabon gives you one incredible gift is that they get to find each other and be in love again at the end. And it's, it's a happy ending. It's, you know, that part of it. You don't know what happens to Sam. You know, I was just I was so relieved because right. everything bad, like so many bad things happened to Joe. And Sam. Yes. So Sam is, is in the closet, like we said, and he ends up, it's the 40s when, when Joe runs off to the war. Leaving he ends his, up locking the closet. <laughs> he runs off to the war, leaving his girlfriend, who was pregnant, unbeknownst to him. So mm-hmm. Sam, you know, and he's good friends with Rosa. Yes. They have a good relationship. So he ends up marrying her and claiming the son as his own and raising the kid. And, you know, they have a fine relationship in terms of they like each other. They have a good, they work together. He's mm-hmm. her editor. She draws comics. He writes them. But, you know, he's gay and she's, she's yeah. so she's, they don't have a full relationship. And so. But they're both playing along with it. He's a good dad. Yeah. Like it's a relatively happy existence except for this one part, which is pretty Right, but it's like bored. 75% of a life. Right, right. And, you know, it's okay. And you just go, God, they deserve more. They all deserve more than that. So that's sort of one thing. And there's a bit at the end too where you said Joe, you know, he's got a million dollars and he's like, well, maybe we'll buy the comic company. And I'm just going, don't do it. <laughs> please don't spend your money on that <laughs> but they just love making comics you know it's like yes. well, it's the thing that gets into the blood of everybody who makes comics right because almost everyone making comics who's not in the upper echelon the rarefied air as bendis once called it mm-hmm. they're not making a good living and they know they could be making a better living somewhere mm-hmm. else but they can't help it and that's kind of like what is a vein through this book as well is mm-hmm. that 
Sammy goes off and tries to be a novelist, and he tries to work in advertising. He has his own advertising agency. At the end of the day, he finds his way back into comics. And, you know, Joe kind of invents the graphic novel here. Yeah. Then he's Will Eisner then. <laughs> oh, you know what else was interesting was, you know, in 2000, you and I had not worked in the Empire State Building. And it's so true. so much of this book takes place in the Empire State Building because that's where the Empire Comics offices are. And that's where a big major plot point happens where Joe returns from the war where he reveals himself in an escapist costume on the top of the Empire State Building. And I was like, oh, a lot of these details are interesting. Mm-hmm. And the Empire State Building was a lot more interesting in the 40s than it was in the 2000s. Yeah. But I can see all those things happening. Because oh, there was sure. no security in the mid-2000s, so there certainly wasn't any in the 40s. Well, they had their own police force, apparently. I their love own, that uh, story. There's a little side thing where Sam is in the auxiliary air watch patrol, so every mm-hmm. night or what a couple shifts a week, he goes up into some, I think it's probably around where we worked, in the 70s or 80s or something like that, and he keeps a watch out the window. I think it's in no, a No, no, he was up on the, on the deck. Oh, okay, you're right. You know, for, for planes, and he's got, and he takes it super seriously, and he's yeah. doing his job. I mean, the thing is, it's like, they're both really good people. Yes. Like, Sammy's a bit of a, a huckster, but it's not coming from a bad place. But no, not, not like a criminal way. He's not like trying no. to get things over. He's got a million ideas. Right. And he'll tell you, I can do this, when he has no idea if he can really do that. Right. You know, in the loving, charming way. <sighs> I was just thinking about the characterization of his mother and yep. Booby. There was one sequence, and I just, I was like, holy fuck, that's my mother-in-law. <laughs> it was this really subtle, passive-aggressive comment of praise and sadness at the same time with about three words. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I, I, I stopped. I was like, oh my God, that's good. Like, you know this person. His character work here is pretty stellar. Yeah. Everyone here is interesting. And the little details about life and character really makes everyone pop off the page. From the actors playing the escapist characters on the radio to the other comic creators themselves. I loved the sort of drunk comic editor who didn't want to be making comics, who was also a novelist who ends up working for the OSS in the war. Beats. Yeah, whatever his name is. He was a great character. Yes. And then at the end, you also get... Easy. George Deasy. Yeah, Deasy. You also get fucking the Kefauver subcommittee <laughs> at the end. Oh, that was rough. <laughs> yeah, and you get Wortham. It goes with the basically Golden Age too, through Wortham. Or the, the start the of the Golden Age. The broad strokes of the history are all accurate in this. Yeah, I yeah, know. I love that. I really like the Sheldon Annapol, the Martin Goodman of the story. He, yep. you know, signs up these kids. He, he buys their stuff for peanuts. You know, it, at the time, everybody was happy about, and it was just how it's done. He's not evil. And he remains relatively close and cordial with Sam and Joe right up until the end. And they talk normally, but there's this gigantic wall between them, which is Mm -hmm. that one of them is rich beyond his wildest dreams, who did nothing. You know, I mean, he took a risk. He paid for it, but he didn't pay a lot. You know, and the others, you know, are are fine. And they all kind of just live with it and ignore it. And there's a tension in those scenes that must have happened in real life because you're still working with these people and like Sheldon's not a bad guy but also at any point he could have given them sure plenty and he would have been fine but he never does and I, I did there was a lot of tension in those scenes that I really like but also I mean, they, they got a cut of some they got a cut of the radio show and they got a cut mm-hmm. of but they didn't get a cut of the publishing which is where he yeah. was making 15 million dollars in the 1940s which is yeah. you know an godly amount of money in now yeah, but like you said, a lot of these guys they have very good livings, but mm-hmm. Jack Kirby's family shouldn't have to work, you know, ever. Right, but no. they do. So I'm looking at the afterward, the back, and he says, "I'm indebted to Will Eisner, to Stan Lee, and in particular to the late Gil Kane for sharing their reminiscences of the Golden Age, and also to Dick Ayers, Sheldon Moldoff, 
Martin Nodell and Marv Wolfman and Lord Shuler Donner for providing introductions to those brilliant. So, mm. you know, he got some, a lot of firsthand stuff from them. He thanks a lot of people, Josh. And the very last person he thinks is Jack Kirby. So I think you're right. There's a lot of Jack Kirby in him, but I think there's also a lot of other the other guys who are more sort of uh, niche. The Jack Kirby that's in the character isn't necessarily one-to-one. One of the things about Jack Kirby that really fascinates me is that if you read about his life, there's all of these points where you want to shake him mm-hmm. and say, don't do it like this. Mm-hmm. You are worth so much more. And I don't even mean like monetarily, but like none of these guys valued the thing that they were doing because right. the world wouldn't know about it until much later. Although a lot of people did while they were alive, certainly. But they had that, you know, Lower East Side, working class, you know, Brooklyn, whatever it is, attitude. And, and you just you just wanted to be like, hold out for more. It's going to work out. And they don't. And that's what happens here is that you watch in hindsight because you know how history actually works out and, and you, you don't want them to just accept the lower offer. And, and there's a lot of times where Joe is not about to, and then he gets convinced to. Well, hopefully he kept that comic book collection he had at the end because then he'll no be shit. all right. Because he well, has like a full yeah. run of action comics, a full run of detective comics. Like he's got everything. What do you think about basically Joe does this gigantic comic novel? It's it's like it's, it's you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages that he wrote and drew. It's called The Golem yeah. or it's about The Golem. I wondered, like, I wasn't sure what to make of that, like what he was trying to work out through there, whether it's his Jewishness or it's, you know, the yeah, combination of those things. Yeah, because he was always sort things. of not, he was sort of an agnostic Jew, right? Like he never yes. was sort of practicing or, I think that was about him coming to terms with his faith and his heritage, which he sort of lost when his family all got killed by the nazis yeah yeah it was interesting though you know you're going along in the story with these characters and then the war comes and it just blows up the whole plot in a way that it did in real life yeah. <laughs> right like people's lives are not literally but metaphorically blown up and so you know everything changes once the war happens and, and then the, the book becomes different the story becomes different but it's just interesting to see how that also works as a sort of a structural trick he pulls is the war just you know blows up the narrative and has to reconvene in a different way afterward after we have a little short little war story in the middle which was fun there's a really sort of crushing scene where sam is in a for the time a pretty good relationship with i can't remember his name, bacon tracy tracy, tracy bacon, bacon. Yep. and you know they're kind of a couple that are almost as out as you can be in that they're time. out in the circles so right they and they go to a, a a weekend sort of party. There's a guy actually who the guy who had paid for the escapist radio program because he's a sock magnate and he yeah, wants incredibly to rich on it. man who's also in the closet. His house in the Jersey Shore. We find that out later and indirectly. Yeah. They're having a big party. The cops raid it because the housekeeper ratted them out for some reason like this is like every, every detail is sort of covered but in not in a way that is tedious and it's so sad and then like the cops sexually assault the guys who were left over yeah the, oh. well the police drag everybody away except for sammy and another guy who hid and the fbi agents who happened to be there mm-hmm. found them and at least one of the agents yeah rapes sammy yeah and it was going to go further but just for a little bit of luck they were going to kill him yeah you just have to like read it and like accept it like Sam did. Like it's an incredibly awful traumatic experience. Right. But like these guys were so tough and like, it's like they just expected things to be hard. And so mm-hmm. they, you know, were able to move on, you know, they, they you know, uh, internalize all that trauma or whatever it is. Oh, but that was crushing. And that, and then Tracy Bacon, you know, goes out fighting. He dies in the war. Yeah. I mean, but like they end up breaking up with each other because, you know, Tracy basically attacks the cops and you know he's a big strong tough man and and 
just between the two of them, then, then they, they sort of well, separate. Also, that, 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 the incident scars Sammy. He yes. doesn't want this to ever happen again. So he, right. so he, he goes fully into the closet. He, just, right. he breaks up with Tracy because he can't, you know, he can't. I'm not going to have love. Yeah. Basically for the rest of my life. And that's what he does until the very end or whatever. But either way, you know, that's just one of those other little tiny views into a world that existed. You find myself thinking, like, what was life for certain people? Like, I know there's lots of, like, things are unfair to people and then they get mistreated. But, you know, many of these people 100 years ago who are outside the norms and margins of society would have had a vastly different and more difficult life. Oh, yeah. And I think about it all the time. And so when you see a bit of a story like this, you know, where they're they're conceptualizing it and showing it. It's really sad, but it's also fascinating. In some ways, the most impressive thing about this book is the research. Mm-hmm. Not just the comic book world and the people you talk to, but just the life in general in the 40s and mm-hmm. a little bit in the 50s. It was very yeah. lived in and it felt very real and authentic. It's true. And and like, Shabon was really relatively pretty young when he wrote this. Yep. And I don't know, I don't know how something can feel so lived in and detailed and authentic, but also not over-labored. Mm-hmm. If you think about, we've talked about Neil Stevenson lots of times. He's my favorite author. He seems to be able to do that same thing, at least to me as a reader, where like everything is laden down with detailed factoids and stuff around it to the point where it shouldn't be interesting, but it, it's just just right. Mm-hmm. And this book had that where I actually, you know, look at the page count. It's just short of 700 pages. 639. Yeah. And, oh, even shorter. I think I looked somewhere it said 690. But either way, I was kind of like, that's it? <laughs> Like, it feels like it should be so much more than that. I just read, I followed up and I did the Yiddish Policeman's Ball, mm-hmm. which is a very different type of story. But I was reading about his process on that. And he wrote the book like four times. Like, he wrote it once in the first person of the main character, decided that didn't work, went back and wrote it again in the third person, had only kept like a fifth of what he had written originally and sort of did another one. Then went through and did it again. And that craft and that care is so evident and then at the mm-hmm. same time while making you know it's people who make really hard things look easy yeah it's amazing yeah and there's so much you, like you said there's so much that sort of almost as an aside that tells mm-hmm. you volumes with the characters I remember, I remember reading it in the last bit where sammy and rose are married and living in long island but people kind of know that their relationship isn't right like their neighbors and friends and there's mm-hmm. sort of only an allusion to that but it gives you a whole novel in your head about what their suburban Ennui must have been that made it clear that their relationship, you know, something was up mm-hmm. and that probably Sammy was gay. That's probably the assumption. That the- and everybody kind of knew it. Like all the comic book people weren't fooled. It wasn't like he was getting over on one, but everybody right. had to accept the same kind of thing. And it was done without malice towards him. Right. Which is also interesting. Like you get the sense like everybody didn't accept things, but there was acceptance. It was a different kind. You wouldn't accept it now. But he worked, you know, he, and it was even after the Kefauver hearings. No, no, it wasn't. That was later. Did he work after that? I guess he went to Hollywood to write TV. He took off to Hollywood to live his Hollywood dream. that He was originally going to live with Tracy Bacon before the war started. Right. He probably would have been fine there because, you know, it was a very vibrant gay underground in Hollywood in the 40s. I yeah. Fit right into it. I think that the point was after the hearing and they basically out him publicly and comics are under scrutiny that I think then he would have had a hard time still working in 
right in comics. So that that's was so the insidious, other you know. They and at the hearing, he's going to testify because his characters always had a sidekick, and they're using that to insinuate that there was some sort of evil gay agenda mm-hmm. that was being put into the comics by Sammy. And it's like, no, it's because we put a sidekick in the sales was up twenty two percent. Like, right? I need to sell books. You feel so bad because he's he's against this insidious force you can't defeat. But earlier in the book, the narrator does make the point of saying that like he is always putting sidekicks in stuff, and he made it sound like it was not nothing. Like, that was a thing he was doing. It wasn't sinister. It wasn't erotica. It was subconscious that he was doing something there. Sure. But also, was the, I mean, there's a reason why there was so many gold age sidekicks is because they attracted kid readers. Yes. No, that makes sense, too. And yeah. not every sidekick was based on that. But there is a little bit of his psyche and subcon- sure. subconscious going into that. So, the volume I, I read, which is the soft cover that came out in 2012, includes several things that weren't in the original, obviously. It has two chapters that he cut from the book. One that he says it made the book better for leaving it out. And one he wishes he could go back and put back in. He says, I won't tell you which is which. You'll have to figure it out for yourself. And I was like, God damn it. Mm-hmm. One chapter is about Sammy's sort of sad suburban, not even relationships. Like he would go and just sort of have breakfast with this guy every morning. Mm-hmm. And that was the extent of their, you know, they didn't even touch. They didn't even shake hands. That was the extent of their relationship. But right. And then the next chapter it takes place at his son's school. Turns out the guy that Sammy was meeting was his, was his son's teacher. It's about Joe going and doing a magic act for the kids. They're both good. I don't know which one he... That's crazy. And then it has two short stories that he did. One that was for the trade paperback of the comic book version, which we'll get to in a minute. That takes place in the future, like in the 90s, when Sammy and Rosa are doing the con circuit. Hmm. You know, as golden age people as they did. And Sammy ends up meeting a young Brian K. Vaughn because Brian K. Vaughn was the author of the comic. It was really mm-hmm. good. And then at the very end, there was something he said he did for like a museum. It was, it was almost like a, um, he, he calls it his American graffiti ending. It was in the form of a, of a talk of the town column, The New Yorker, which is like their little column they do in the front. And it sort of tells you what's happened to most all the characters later mm-hmm. on in their lives. Really? Joe ends up dying of cancer. He only married Rose at the very end. They sort of lived in sin for their whole lives. By the way, you just said that to me, and I became genuinely sad. Yeah. You said Joe died of cancer, and like as real as you told me anybody had. And that's how realistically these characters were portrayed. Yeah. So Rosa and Sam almost kind of rekindled their platonic creative partner relationship in their older years and, mm-hmm. and you know ran the con circuit together the son from the book became a magician and then they had a second son joe and rosa who became a comic artist himself mm-hmm. not quite a this is what happened to them but it's sort of like you know this is what happened to everybody mm-hmm. cool i was so sad when it was over i was like god i'll keep reading yeah. this book forever yeah that's why i immediately found another shabon book <laughs> so we should talk about in 2006 dark horse released a miniseries called the escapists that was based in, the, in this world. I don't remember. You don't remember it at all? I mean, I remember, I was just looking it up and trying to read it, and then I saw the artists were Jason R. Alexander and Philip, Philip Bond, Bond. And I went, yeah. okay, right, right. So there was an element of... Alexander did the work within the work. So basically, it's right. a very meta book about trying to make escapist comics. It wasn't mm-hmm. about the character of the escapist. It was about these young comic creators in the 2000s trying to revive the character. And so right. Jason Alexander did the actual... In comic work, whereas Philip Bond drew the real world stuff. We loved it. I think it was pick of the week, like three out of five issues. Yeah, no, I remember it was really, really good. Three or six That issues. I definitely remember. Yeah. But the details are gone now. And that was like at the height of Brian K. Vaughn's, yeah. you know, where he was like 
the man in comics at the time. Yeah, Brian K. Vaughn is the first vote Hall of Famer, as far as comics go. <laughs> and that's without a huge oeuvre, but what he, everything he did was gold. I, I definitely have the issues. I don't know if I have the collection. I definitely want to reread it, though. Yeah, I think that's that's clear. Maybe we revisit this in six months. <laughs> you know, you hate to do this, but it happens. I was reading this going, man, this would make a great fucking miniseries. Because there's just so much here that's even more relevant now than, you know, maybe even back then. I agree with you, but I also have the thing where, like, to me, the experience of the thing is so full that I, I don't... For, this is one of those things where, like, it might be interesting to see an adaptation of it, but I don't think it would add anything to it, just because it is so full and nuanced, you couldn't even get there. It's been in development basically since the book came out, so 23 yeah. years of being in development hell. First as a film, then as a miniseries, as, as recently as 2019, Shaban said he was working on it as a miniseries for Showtime, but clearly that never happened. He moved over to doing Picard for the same company, mm -hmm. so... Maybe we'll see it. I mean, I think it'd be interesting considering people are much more familiar with the sort of the comic book milieu than they were mm -hmm. 23 years ago in terms of the mass market people. And, and you know, life as a couple of poor Jewish kids and one of them in the closet may be much more resonant now than perhaps at the time. But, you know, whatever. I think it's one, it's, it's interesting. I think about like why the last man, which is only tangentially related because of the Vaughn connection, but, you know, that was in development forever the 20 yeah. years or whatever and then the show came out and the show was great and it didn't even make it through the first season because it just couldn't find that audience i would uh i would disagree with you about how good the show was i really liked the show i thought they did a good doesn't matter they did a good interpretation of i think the themes of it the thing that i liked it'd been so long yeah i think that's part of the problem is if you're gonna do the show you gotta do the show don't do a different story do a different story with another story not the one that you're adapting but anyway for me it just felt so cinematic reading it and that's more than what i was thinking i could picture the action because mm -hmm. it was so well told all the stuff around the empire state building would just look really great i know we're not supposed to adapt everything but i just had that thought as i was reading it's like oh man i could see how this would be shot but it doesn't matter it's a great book it won the Pulitzer Prize. it wasn't siobhan's first book right it was wonder boys was his first book no the mysteries of pittsburgh was his, was his this right. was his third book mysteries of pittsburgh i think was very critically received but a very small book wonder boys of course was made into a film which i saw first and then read the book later great adaptation great book you know had a lot of juice and this was at a time where probably publishing you could be a little bigger. There's authors now who are big, but it's narrow casting to a certain extent. This book really blew him up as a American yeah. writer. You know, this book was everywhere at the time. Yeah, it's uh, put him on that sort of next level. But it was a big deal. It's still really interesting to me. Like, it's a great book. Yeah. It's undeniable. I am surprised that it got that kind of notoriety. Like somebody in PR publicity at the publisher was doing their job to make sure that this got seen because the quality is undeniable. Oh, for sure. I mean, also, like, you know, sometimes things just blow up. You don't know why, you know? Yes, The that's right true. person reviews them, especially, you know, in 2000, it was still like, you know, a Bafo review in the New York Times would blow your book up. It could have just been that kind of thing. It actually kind of reminds me of The Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, mm -hmm. which is 2007. Did, I think it won something. Did it win the Pulitzer? I'm trying to remember. Anyway, it's a very niche kind of story that, let's see, won the National Book Critic Award, Times Novel Year, Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. And it's about a character who's like very into comics and sci-fi. Mm -hmm. Again, so and it was, uh, there was some very specific little nuggets in it that I was like, wow, that's some deep nerd shit. You know, it won a Pulitzer too. So maybe the people who vote for Pulitzer are <laughs> nerds. <laughs> maybe. Like maybe this is the way, like you read a really good book and you handle that nerd shit, then, you know. Oh, have I not told you I'm on the Pulitzer Committee? Yeah, I see. That's what it I've was. I've been on there for 25 years. 
<laughs> so anyway, look, I can't recommend this book enough. And if you've made it this far, you either don't care about spoilers or you've read it yourself. But if you haven't read it since it came out and you've been reading comics for the last 23 years, just pick it up again. Maybe you're looking for a thing to read again, something that's going to make you feel something. I mean, unless your memory is amazing, you're going to get to take that ride again. And that oh, yeah. has been so special. I mean, if I've learned nothing else, is that like, if there is a book, especially a book, because books are so detailed, it's hard to hold on to all of that stuff. Right. If there is a book that you loved 10, 15, 20 years ago, do yourself that favorite. And this is one of them, but there are others. Right. And it's magical. Really, it's like well, one we talk of the about that with the comic side, right? Like Kingdom Come. Yeah. When we reviewed Kingdom Come. I was like, ah, oh, it's been so long. I forgot a lot of the details. That's a book I'd read several times. There mm-hmm. was this book was a book I read once, twenty three years ago, and so it was like it was yeah. definitely like reading it again for the first time. Even if I had like vague tuggings at my subconscious, go, you remember this? It's like, oh yeah, I do remember that. But it was basically like reading a new book, and it was amazing. I think comics because they're shorter and you have images to go along oh, yeah, with things that stick in your head a little, yeah. it sticks a little more. Sure, for sure. Uh, just like movies or whatever, but... Or music, which yeah. tugs on yes, a part of your brain. That's very short form, but... Yeah, no, for sure, but... <laughs> Did you? Sorry, sidebar. Yeah. You know, the other day I sent you guys on Instagram a, a video clip of the beginning credits of the Hogan family. Yes. <laughs> so that was four days ago. Yeah. I have had that song playing word for word. I didn't forget a single word of it since that time and i want to kill myself that's how well, bad that's that stuff fault. weasels that stuff your into fault. your brain yeah sorry <laughs> like i said in the beginning it made me sort of angry like oh man what other books oh sure should i be rereading that i loved because it'll be like rereading them for the first time plus i've already got a hundred books in my to read stack right exactly but this was worth it i had other books planned when you said mm-hmm. let's do the adventures of cavalier and clay for the books load and i had literally had just finished reading a book and i had another one on my nightstand to start that night and I was like, oh, fuck, fine. And I pulled it off the shelf and I just started it and I don't I'm guessing it, it didn't take you long to not be able to put it down. Oh, no, no. I was I was like, within the first chapter, I was like, well, mm-hmm. shit. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I got texted you. I was like, fine, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I really did. Like, I finished it and I was like, I want to talk about this and no one else is going to remember it. So I was like, I need you to read it so that I can get this out. There are seminal events in the world of comic books. And what I mean is by the people who make them and the people who Mm -hmm. read them and the people who sell them, which is a very, you know, as we know, a small and passionate community of people. Mm -hmm. And like the Marvel Comics history book, when that came out, like everyone read that. And when, Mm -hmm. you know, this book came out in 2000s, we weren't as plugged in as we are now. But we, like I said, there was, it was the nascent comics internet. We were certainly hanging around in communities and there was CBR and Newsarama. This book was also everywhere. And every once in a while, the, a book will come out that pays tribute to or talks about the comics industry in a way that really hits the entire community in a good way. And then mm-hmm. and this one just happened to also blow up with the rest of the world, too. Read it. Twice. <laughs> Read it twice. So there you go. That's The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, a novel by Michael Chabon. Cannot recommend it enough. It's from Random House. You can definitely go get it. I have this, this soft cover, $17 that came out. You should read The Brief and Wonders Life of Oscar Wow. You don't have to read it soon, but it was amazing. Josh, you should find these extra chapters so you can read more. I'd like to. It'll be new for you. Yeah, I can do that. So there you go. You can check out that book. There'll be a link for it on our show if you want to buy it. And you can also listen to Josh and I talk about new comic books every week on the Pick of the Week show. Also, like we said, there's a Talksplode show where Josh interviews a comic creator. That's the sister show to this one. They alternate months. We also have our monthly Media Splode show. We talk about non-comic book media and all kinds of special edition shows. You know, we did Guardians of the Galaxy review last week and, you know, the other movies coming up. So there's all kinds of things happening. They're all at fanboy.com. All, are over 1,300 shows that we've been doing since 2005, which was five years after this book came out. It can all be found there. This was fun, Josh. I'm glad you said this. I'm glad you recommended it. I'm glad you read it. 
So am I. So am I. All right. So then until next time, I am Connor. I'm Josh. Bye-bye. From